Good morning, Sarah Heffler. Good morning, Nancy Rommelman. Can you tell that I have kind of a cold? I, I actually, I was super drippy too. I, I think I brought it home from Texas. God, you make it sound so cool. I was super drippy too. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, can you tell that I have a cold? <laughs> Um, little, well, I think both of us, it's been kind of run, 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 hell's a poppin', especially for you. It's really hard to know if this cold comes from the fact that I spent four days in the Gulf Shores of Alabama, which I loved, but the breeze and the allergies that were being kicked up. I mean, I began every morning feeling like a 70-year-old person, <laughs> you know, just sneezing. And and then I came back to Dallas and the air quality is really bad because there's some dust fire or something like that that's blown in. I'm so destabilized. I don't even know what happened. But, but like literally, if you go on your iPhone, it just says air quality, very bad. And I heard a news report that was like, if you don't have to go outside, just close your windows. Well, I, I, that doesn't sound great. What's also not great is ripping through uh, New York City right now is the norovirus, which apparently makes you start <laughs> exploding from both ends of your body. And they've actually got this hilarious like little logo and it's like, just like these stick figures, like one is like, oh, holding its stomach and then one is on the toilet and the other is vomiting. So that's fun. That's no way. On. So this is yeah. actually a thing that's ripping through yeah, yeah. New York yeah. City? Yeah, yeah. Norovirus. Yeah, it is. I, is I it, was it made stronger because of the something related to the pandemic, the vaccines or anything like that? I think norovirus is kind of a thing that's always been around. And for some reason, it's it's just traveling around. I, I, I'm not exactly sure how you get it. Um, but anyway, that's fun. We also, we actually had something beautiful last night. It snowed here in New York City last night and we really, and didn't like, not like crazy snow, but we, um, we went out to dinner, which I'll be talking about later in the hot box. Um, but, uh, then we walked from over there to, uh, the comedy cellar to see the music on Monday nights and we walked in the snow for about a mile. It was just beautiful. It's really beautiful. It's nice. I love the snow. And then I hate in April when it's still snowing in New York. Yeah. And yeah, it's like, well, this is disgusting. I hate the snow. Yeah. I, I was in Montana once and it snowed in August. I was in, this is a funny story. I was in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. I think it was like June or July and I was going to Yellowstone and I was camping underneath the fir trees. And I woke up and my tent was dark and I was like, landslide. <laughs> and I got out of the tent and it the whole ground was covered in snow. <laughs> it was the most magical landslide. And I was like, I did not know it could snow in like July. It was so cool. Um, Sarah, do you have something you want to say to, well, I'll just start. So, um, you know, when you have a Substack, you have to have an email address associated with it. And, and if you get email, then you know, like maybe someone's asking you a question. It also tells you when you have new followers. And yesterday, Sarah texted me. She's like, wait, what, what, what's going on? It's like a slot machine. Like ding, 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 follower, follower, follower. So you want to tell them what happened, Sarah? Yeah. Uh, well, yes. So by the way, now you know who gets the emails. Yeah. Who's I, the one uh, that cleans up the emails, cares and feeds for the emails. All right. I used to do it. Anyway. You did it for a while and now I do it and I'll give it back to you eventually. We take turns. We're, we're a team here. We're a pod team. And then when I got home from, uh, Alabama, I checked my email and I noticed an email from the Substack community. Substack community had contacted us and let us know that we had been selected for something that I forget. And we were featured. We were featured podcast along with my friend Heather Hyings, Natural Selection, <clears throat> excuse me, and, and three others. So I guess I don't know how often they do this, but I like we're going to be there now. We are a selection. So first of all, I want to say thank you for the several hundred new uh, followers we have. We hope we bring you some joy and delight with what we're talking about. We've got a lot of a lot of features. If you poke around our site, you can find out what they are for the free subscribers and then for the paid subscribers. Of course, we'd like you to pay. Uh, if you like it enough, maybe you'll do that. Um, but yeah, I was checking around. Like we, A lot of our, our buds over there, fifth column is over there if it wasn't featured yesterday. And it's just a, it's a, it's a nice thing Substack does to sort of increase the community. Like here's some things you might like. And um, I'm, I'm grateful to be there and I'm grateful for everyone who's maybe listening for the first time. Well, we have hundreds of new subscribers. And so one of my first questions to you, Nancy Rommelman, is yes. what is the name of this podcast? The name of this podcast is Smoke Em If You Got Them. What the hell does that mean? Well, it's actually an old World War II phrase, uh, which I think meant like, like you're going to have a break for a minute. You got some smokes. Go ahead and smoke one. But what it means sort of in the popular culture is use what you got. 
right? If you're super tall, use it. If you're, you know, journalists like us, let's talk about stuff. So that's what we're going to do. Well, I don't have a lot of money and I subscribe to a lot of sub stacks and it's kind of exhausting to subscribe to more. So what would be the incentive to pay money for your sub stack? Well, you know what? They can go on the site and look. It, we've got a little thing, like if you go and you want to pay, but a couple of things. We've got two regular features a week. Uh, Sarah drops her, what, your night slither. Smoking. No, it's called the smoking diaries. Would you <laughs> stop calling it your night slither? <laughs> well, that sounds like something illegal. Okay. Anyway, she drops that on um, Friday nights. I have something called Pie Talk on uh, on Sunday mornings. And then we do about two episodes a week um, of talking about the culture, talking about stories that are that other people are talking about. Maybe they're not, but usually. Uh, and then also we have some guests. We had Steve Kornacki on recently. Steve Korsnacki, everybody's sweetheart from S- M- the MSNBC uh, statistician and Sarah Hepler's old friend from Salon. Um, we had uh, Jamie Kerchick on the other day. He wrote the definitive story about Army Hammer. We've got a couple of other people coming on, and I hope it's a fun place to be because we're we have fun doing it. So, and it's probably important to say that we uh, share the first like forty five minutes or so of our podcast for free. That's right. But you know, you know how it goes at a party. Shit goes down in the second half. Yeah. It gets a little wilder. It gets a little looser. Everybody's saying, and plus it's premium content. We're saying things that you might not otherwise hear. And so if you want to get the full fig, as my friend Nancy Rommelman says, you got to pay up. But regardless of what you pay, how you pay, whether you pay, we welcome you. We're glad that you're here. Uh, We're glad to be doing this and to have people along for the ride. And I thank Substack for including us. So um, the first thing we're just going to talk about uh, just quickly is, um, so everybody knows the tragic story of what happened to Alex Baldwin on the set. Alec. Alec, sorry. Alec Baldwin on the set of um, the movie Rust. Uh, This was a couple of years ago. Um, He had a gun that had been handed to him by the armorer, which is a, a word we all learned. It's someone that's on the on the crew that takes care of the firearms. And apparently... Can I pause you for a second? Because sure. there's just so much... I know you wanted to say go through this quickly, but there's like a couple things that I need to pause you on. Sure. First of all, when you say that we all learned there's a word called armorer, you mean because you worked in tech, in film tech, in film crew? I did. And that has always been a job that existed. I'm sure it has. I... Uh, you know, it's interesting because the movie, uh, the miniseries I was on where I met Taba's dad, my daughter's dad in 1985, there were, even though it was like taking place in the, you know, the 1600s, there were a lot of like muskets and swords and all this kind of stuff. Sure. And yeah, there was a, there was more than one dude that was taking care of this stuff. I mean, the stuff was locked up and, um, but I didn't know the word armorer as a title until I learned about the Alec Baldwin situation. I didn't, I'd never heard that title. It didn't yeah. even occur to me that there would, of course, have to be somebody doing that. So what happened? And then we're going to go into a little backstory that hasn't been talked about. Um, that's why you're here, folks. Um, he, he was handed a gun. And apparently, this came out later, the, the, the armorer was actually the daughter of a pretty famous armorer. She was not, I don't know if she was super young. I think she was in her 20s, but you know, she was hired on the job. And apparently, Alex said later, we don't know if this is true. He said, she said to him, Do you want to check? Because you want to check, is it, you know, you want to make sure you don't have a live weapon in your hand. And he said, if I'm recalling this correctly, he didn't want to make her feel bad because she was new. He wanted to show that he trusted her. And he's like, No, it's okay. Well, Oof. I know. Oof. I so I don't really know the sequence of events. I don't think they were actually rolling yet. I don't think so, but they could have been. And right. he had the gun and he's pointing it toward the camera. There's a, a, a female DP. I can probably find her name, but I'm sorry that I'm forgetting it. And then also, um, I think the director, maybe? And he points it and he fires the gun and he hits her and the director, I believe it was, and she dies. The DP dies. DP, yeah, sorry. Right, director of photography. She dies. And, I mean, this is, okay, how does this happen? Well, it's a series of small mistakes that wind up in a fatal 
mistake, right? So is there one person responsible? Well, you could say Alec Baldwin is responsible because he fired the gun, but then it's like, well, maybe the armorer is responsible because she had a live round in there. And maybe, you know, you can go back and back and back and find it. Well, in any case, they were brought up, the armorer and Alec Baldwin, I believe on second degree murder or manslaughter charges. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm getting my facts wrong. I always do this, but, um, uh, they have been dropped. He's not going to – he may do a little bit of, of prison time if he's convicted, I think, something like eight months. I mean, 18 months, but before it had been a potentially much longer sentence. Um, in any case, the reason we're talking – So just – it was involuntary manslaughter charges. Okay. okay. So the reason we're talking about this is because there's a short – a little piece dropped, I believe it was yesterday – um, saying several individuals on the crew, three, uh, are suing uh, three Rust crew members filed a lawsuit against Alec Baldwin and the film's producers on Monday, according to court documents. The individuals claim they have suffered anxiety and system- symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder uh, after the fatal shooting of cinematographer Halnya Hutches on October 21st. She was 42. Boy, so, hits keep coming for Yeah, him. so... I have a couple of things to say, and I, and I also just want to add to this. They're, they're talking about PTSD, which, you know, could be a lot of different symptoms for a lot of different reasons. Um, but the three that are suing um, allege that they were in close proximity to Baldwin when the gun was fired and sustained, in quotes, blast injuries from huh. the ear-splitting sound of the shot. Now, now, okay, could you say, you know, these people are on a movie set. We are going to assume they have heard many shots. This is a this is like a western. There's going to be a lot of guns, and you're going to hear it. Maybe you maybe you wear earmuffs to muffle the sound. Um, is it possible that the combination of the sound and the fact that a woman was struck or two people were struck and that that sort of like increased the trauma of of what was happening in the ear and in the brain and in their bodies? I guess it is possible. I'm also going to say, which is one of the reasons why we're talking about this, is that I still know a lot of people in the film business, including, I'm not going to say who they are, um, but who told me that they knew about this shoot and this shoot was something of a shit show from the get-go. And they were hiring people that maybe weren't the greatest at their jobs. Um, There have also been reports previously that there just was not a happy set. Like they were, they were housing the people very far from the set. So it was like this long commute every day. Do you have something to say? Cause you look like you're, you've come upon some information here, Sarah. Well, I just, I was very curious what kind of gun it was because some guns make more noise than others. And it's a 45 caliber caliber Colt revolver. I don't know enough about guns to tell you what that sounds like, but I do, I can tell you that I've been to the shooting range in the last year because I'm starting to learn to shoot after a lifetime of staying the hell away from guns, being very scared of them, shrieking when I saw them. I decided that it would be good. It would be good for me if I live, I live in Texas, which is an open carry state and guns are very, they're around me all the time, whether I like it or not to get some facility with them. And so I have gone to the shooting range a couple of times, by the way, P.S., super fun, super it is, fun. It is super fun, yeah. And, you know, I am with somebody that that really has, he's been shooting since he was like, could hold a gun. And he's very careful and he's a very good instructor. Um, and they're very strict with laws. But the first time that I was there, I didn't have my head, my, not my headphones, but my ear, not my earmuffs, my what are the yeah like that the, mu- the muffs like they're they're muffling the sound they look like like what we're wearing right now to record these sort they of they look like, like Bose headphones yeah. yeah yeah I I had I had gotten them but I'd forgotten to put them on and this kid shot right next to me and I mean my ears were ringing for the rest oh, of the day wow it okay. was and you could feel it all through your body now would I ever like take criminal charges against that person for that no that was my stupid fault but also it it wasn't that bad but um. But I don't know. That's just to say that the sound of a gun in close range does it. It does like the sound and the blast ricochet through your system, even if the bullet doesn't come it, close to you. 
It's jarring. Yeah, I'll try to find um, like a little video or a sound video, at least for that particular gun. Um, when I talked to <clears throat> this person that knew people on the shoot, uh, they said there were just red flags on this shoot from the beginning. And I know because I've worked on <clears throat> I've worked on movies, excuse me. <clears throat> I've worked on movies that have been on location. Location shooting is hard. It is hard. You've got maybe 80 people. You all have to pull in the same direction at the same time. There are personalities. People are cranky. People are falling in love. People are angry. It's, <laughs> people are exhausted. They're exhausted. <clears throat> Sorry, I have a frog. Talk for a minute, Sir Hepler. Sure, no problem. <laughs> I have a frog in my... in. As well, I call him Frank, and he lives in the pond next door. And um, you can always tell when it's mating season because he's he's. Hold on, does he go like this? Yes. Hello, I can do frog sounds. Um, in any case, I, I, this person was not surprised. I mean, obviously, not anticipating this kind of tragedy, but <clears throat> things had just not been done properly. And uh, let's see what happens. I mean, I what I did not realize when I was reading the end of this article was, oh, I don't think I have it here, but he is not, Alec Baldwin, oh, moving forward, Baldwin is not allowed to drink alcohol, own a gun, or talk to potential witnesses besides discussing the continuation of the filming rust. The movie is scheduled to resume production this spring. I thought that was weird. I mean, not allowed to drink alcohol? I, 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 is it I, is it presumption that he was I, drunk on set? I have no. That's the first time I've seen anything about this, and I don't. I mean, don't you think we would have read that before? Uh, all I know is, I mean, when that first came out, there was a picture of him, like immediately afterwards, just weeping, just an absolute wreck. Your life changes literally in a split second. Everything changes, and I, I. I think this is just a tragedy all around. Uh, even if there are mistakes made, look, we all make mistakes. You know, we do something stupid. We cross against a red light. We're not looking. I don't know. It's just, it's tragic. I also find it pretty crazy that they're going to continue filming this movie. I do too. I wonder why. So I, I, I looked up a little bit of this because I wanted to know who the director was. It's somebody named Joel Souza. And and you are correct. He was injured right. by the projectile as well. Now, I don't know. It looks like... Uh, I'm trying to look at what else he's done. Nothing that I know. Crown Vic, I've heard of. Christmas Trade, Ghost Squad, Hannah's Gold, nothing. Um, so, I, you know, I don't know this person. Uh, he's 49 years old. I, it sounds like this is a Western um, in, set in 1880s Kansas. I don't I don't know why they would keep filming this because it seems really doomed to me in terms of being... I, you know, you've lost the DP and this court case is unfolding. Um, but obviously there was a business decision made. Is I think I think Baldwin was one of the producers of the of the movie, which is one of the reasons I think that Yeah, I thought that being, too. He's being sued. Look, movies, Yeah, he produces and stars in this. Right. So the movies cost, you know, many millions of dollars to make. Sarah Hepla had a pretty good comment. I don't know, when we first started the podcast, I think we maybe even was a subtitle of one of our episodes, like, is Hollywood over? You know, they're just these incredibly bloated um, uh, expenses involved in a movie. And people are just like, I don't want to do that anymore. You know, I'm going to do it for TV. I'm going to do it smaller. Well, so the reason see. I thought of that was because I went to TikTok and I was like, have you seen what people are doing for free? And then yeah. you compare that to the bloated budget of these films. Yeah. And it's just like, why would you con continue to pay union wages for the armorer and the cat herder and the, all the other, you know, when you, everybody's just doing it for free. I, I remember what that movie, I think it was about 10 or 12 years ago that came out. I think it was called Orange that was shot entirely on an iPhone. Yes. And it was amazing. It's like, I mean, this is, you know, this is obviously we talk often about sort of like the demise of certain parts of our industry and like can't make a living like we used to. Um, but also like, look at all the opportunity. It's just insane for the, including what we're doing right here. You're in Dallas. Yeah. I'm here. We're doing, this is like episode 62 of this. It's just because we want to talk about things. I wonder, and this is, I'm so sorry. This is super cynical, 
But I wonder if they're going to continue to make it, not only because they're going to maybe like recoup or try to even make money, let's say, but maybe because people are just have this ghoulish fascination with. I, I think that's right. I know. It's just, it's. it's uh, okay. Rest. Well, we will keep a rest. Yeah, rest, rest. I need rest. I was up till. Two, I, I said rust, which is the name oh, of the rest. thing, and you heard rest because you're so tired. I, because I was, didn't go to bed till two thirty in the morning. It's all right. What were you doing, party girl? Oh, we were out listening to music, and then you know, and just doing stuff. And um, yeah. Anyway, that's why I have. So there's there. I'm. I have a studio here. Hello, new listeners. I'm in. By the way. We will introduce ourselves to the new listeners. I'm Nancy Rommelman. I'm a journalist and an author and a podcaster. I live in New York City. I'm in Chinatown. I have a stu- an actual sound studio that we built in this like second part of my apartment. We got a lot of people that tape here. The Fifth Column guys do. Ask a Jew podcast. We do this podcast, and sometimes we do stuff for Paloma Media. And um, and my better half, Sarah. Would you like to introduce yourself? My name is Sarah Heppola. I'm in Dallas, Texas. I'm a ne'er do well and a gadabout, a rambler, <laughs> and a podcaster and a writer. I wrote a book in 2015 called Blackout, which was about getting sober. And, uh, you know, I'm working on my second book, and who knows when the fuck that's going to come out. Sorry, I dropped the F-bomb really early on. Yeah, that's fine. If you're ever a guest on this show, because you know when you go on, on someone else's podcast and you're about to curse, but you're like, am I allowed to? They're like, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Or then you, or you already know you're not supposed to. So I try not to. I try to be, try to be a nice girl. My my daughter also says to me, "Mom, could you could you stop cursing so much?" Podcasting <laughs> is the cussers realm. Cussers delight. Cussers delight. Yeah, I knew I didn't quite nail the landing on that. Yeah, Thank yeah, you very much, yeah. my better half. Yep. And uh, I podcast from a studio in my bedroom. Uh, that has a pink neon sign in here just to give me a little light. And uh, my cat Wallace is sitting next to me. So Sarah, would you like to tee up? Um, uh, you sent me this story this morning. I'd love for you to tee it up and we'll talk about it because, man, I have, a, I have so many thoughts about this piece, which was on the cover of the New York Times Magazine couple days ago we're, we're, we're taping this no up. it will be um, oh, it will be it will this be. just dropped this morning okay. uh this is the cover of this weekend's new york times magazine it's called nobody wants to be the world's villain which is a quote from the piece and the subhead is inside the louisville police department where officers are reckoning with what it means to be a cop in a city that doesn't trust them This story I knew about because it is written by one of my dearest friends, uh, Jamie Thompson. Jamie was a writer here in Dallas. Before that, she made her bones at St. Petersburg. St. Petersburg? Is that right? In Florida? Yeah. In Florida. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, her husband, she's married to a journalist who's now at the Washington Post, was then at the Dallas Morning News. She wrote for D Magazine and some other places around here. We became very close friends. She's my sister from another mister, and I love her dearly. And she's been working on this for 15 months, and we didn't know if it was going to ever make it anywhere. And so she made it to the cover of the magazine. Um, this is a really incredible story. She, uh, One of Jamie's, I think, I think she has a lot of strengths, but one of them is that she can talk to cops. She gets access with these cops. She spends a lot of time. If you don't know the cop world, and I know it a little bit because I dated one of them in my early 30s, um, it's very cloistered. You're really not supposed to, if you're a journalist, you're only supposed to talk to the PIO, which is the public information officer. And cops really aren't supposed to talk to you. But there was a decision made inside the Louisville department that they would trust Jamie, who's done a, lots of great work, including a wonderful book that came out in 2017 called Standoff, which is about the shooting of five black police. I'm sorry, five officers. Five, da- five officers were killed during a Black Lives Matter protest in Dallas. And she does a really remarkable rendering of the chaos and the tragedy of that day. And it's not something we we don't hear a lot about that, do we? No. And I think Jamie would tell you that that book came out into the black uh, into the Black Lives Matter moment. I mean, the, the 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 primary character in that book is a hostage negotiator who is black, who is having his own internal, you know, 
his own internal wrestling with his role as a black officer. And he's an amazing, amazing character. I think his name is Larry, but he goes by the nickname Flash. Um, so he kind of carries the book. So Black Lives Matter had happened, but it, it, it emerged into the George Floyd moment. And the book just basically disappeared. I mean, even Jamie would tell you that. And I, and I thought it was a incredible book. I, I still will insist that that book is a great success. I don't really care what the numbers say. It was, she was witness to a moment in history and she she got it on the page in a way that was fair and deep and electric. And I, and I just admire what she did there. And um, what she's done now is to turn her sights on the Louisville Police Department because it is the site of the Breonna Taylor incident. Which are, which are my friend <clears throat> Rukmini Kalamachi, who we discussed in the last episode. <clears throat> Nancy, why, are, why am I the smoker, but I you have know. all the frogs in your I throat. don't know. I'm getting, I'm just getting like this, my, my little creaky voice on. Um, our, Rukmini wrote really the definitive uh, Breonna Taylor story, I believe, um, back in, uh, I guess it was 2020. Um, and I remember this because I was reporting on the ground in Portland and she, or maybe it's 2021. We have, you can look that up because you're the looker up. Um, yeah. Do, do you, uh, yeah. Do you have cough drops or anything? I do, but I'm good now. I got rid of it. I think I it's, I still hear it. Why don't okay. you go get cough drops and I'll tell everybody about this story. Yeah. Okay. She's saying she's panting like a dog. Okay. So, um, she chose the Louisville department because of its association with the Breonna Taylor story, because of the investigation there. She's particularly interested in the way that cops and police departments run and also in how they are changing because of the pressure and the, um, the clamor and the frankly hatred that you know, I, I I have told the story before that um, I dated a homicide detective when I was 33 years old. He was one of the great loves of my life. His name is Nick. And we reunited briefly a couple years ago. And I told him, what do you think about ACAB? ACAB is this acronym, you know, and that means all cops are bastards. And he's like, what's that? And I was like, it, it means all cops are bastards. And he's like, oh, nobody thinks that. And I was like, oh, no, they do. <laughs> they do because police live inside kind of a bubble sometimes. And even the ones that follow the news don't always know what's going on. And he had no idea of the prominence of that of that saying. And, of course, now he does because he's been to a few different protests. But anyway, she had been uh, spending time in the Louisville department and uh, she became, you know, she got she earned the trust of a guy that had just been brought in to head up the, I guess it's called accountability and approve improvement department, which just reeks of bureaucracy to me. Um, but basically, uh, he's a 39 year old black, you know, he's, he's deputy chief of police. He's been on the force since he was 22. And, uh, and he is walking into a pretty fractured department. They're demoralized by what's happened inside of it, not just the Brianna Taylor incident, which a lot of the cops, it, it becomes clear in this story that a lot of the cops initially defended the other cops. And then as more evidence came out, they, they had to stop defending them. They, they could see that some reckless disregard had happened. Um, there's also, there's like some sexual harassment cases that are going on in this department. There's all sorts of dysfunction. There's a point at which we learn that DNA tests take a year to come back from the lab. And so the detectives are just trying to do their cases without DNA. They have a 32% close, closure rate on cases, which is very low. So there's all sorts of problems with this department when he comes in. And he introduces this story to us, which is going to be about how one department is dealing with the changes brought about by this moment, how they feel, what have been their private and public compromises and internal monologues. Um, 
and what might be done about it? Like, what can we do? Because as this police department is falling apart, the violent crime in Louisville is skyrocketing. And what are we going to do about this? And so slogans might be great on Instagram and, and Twitter, but in the real world, we need real solutions. So this is one of the guys that has come in to be part of, I guess, a solution. Um, his name is uh, Colonel Paul Humphrey. And, you know, when he comes in, there's a couple details in the opening that I want to that I want to share. I thought they were really good. When he comes into the department, there's plexiglass over the window, which had been put in in 2020 uh, after 100 days of protests after the killings of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, and during which a welcome sign had been rearranged to spell "I see murderers." So he tells a story, you know. He says, you hear these stories about cops who do heroic things, and they say, I didn't sign up to be a hero. No, I'm sorry. I signed up to be a hero. The vast majority of cops signed up to be somebody's hero. I, I, I highlighted that, too. I mean, that is something that – I'm going to interrupt you just for a second. I, when we started talking about this, you say a lot of reporters don't talk to cops or they don't have access. I, like you, have had <clears throat> pretty good access to police First of all, because I reported on the ground in Portland for a long time and I was trying to tell a round story. And actually, the police took notice of this because this was a, just a crazy situation. And I, a lot of people spoke to me on the record and off the record. Um, and I also know a lot of police in New York City because my friend who does the Ask a Jew podcast, Yael Bartour, she was the public, not a public information officer. She did social media for the NYPD for about five years. <clears throat> and so she knows plenty of officers and I've met plenty of them. And here's the thing. Most officers do go in not yeah. to be a hero with like the big H on their chest. Oh, I'm going to be. And of course we have, we have terrible police. Of course we do, but they will, police will also be not always, but will be the first to tell you they want things to be better. The thing about it is that and we'll, we'll get more deeply into this. I'm sure. I mean, we hear about the horror shows and there are, there's, there's rot. One thing that this article I was really impressed by is that there were solutions being created from yeah. all of this trauma and this tragedy. There real people are like, wow, here's something that we can actually do better. We'll talk a little bit about this, but what people do not see, you know, if there's, you know, someone is beaten by a police officer or God forbid killed you don't see the 539 other positive things that were that that policing did that day whether they came to your house because you called 911 because your mother had an aneurysm or whether you were on the street and someone hit you in the face i mean if i'm in the subway oh, the new york city subway these days are as i've said before like the devil's armpit i'm happy when i see police officers there because i've had so much gross stuff happen they are mostly doing a very good job that's my opinion. I understand that there, you know, people think all cops are bastards. This is, I think, ridiculous. I think it's completely juvenile to apply this. It's just, it's a slogan that we're going to like shout today. I'm actually writing a story about this right now. But um, in any case, carry on. I, 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 I think the first thing I want to say, or the last thing I want to say in this little part is that this story that is appearing this week on the cover of the New York Times magazine. We would not have seen this story a year ago, and we certainly would have not seen it three years ago because there was absolutely no room in the collective heart to have any interest or sympathy with the police. There was zero. And that is, unfortunately, why your friend's book, I mean, these are five human beings that have been killed. All right. They've been killed. They are officers. They have families. They bleed red blood like the rest of us. But no, we are not going to spend any time on them because we have our bigger, bigger missions. I, I, I think I'm very, very heartened to see this on the cover of the Times this week on the magazine. Yeah, I am too. I am too. I think it it signals a new and necessary phase. Mm -hmm. uh, the idea that all cops are bastards is an absurdity. Um, the idea that all blank are any blank is an absurdity. <clears throat> By which I mean that kind of categorical dismissal is just, it's reductive. And like you say, it's juvenile. But, you know, uh, there are, I'm sure, several reasons why this is the case. But but it's true that policing is in a kind of crisis. Um, in Louisville, hundreds of officers have resigned or retired. Um, the force is short, 300 people. 
The department has had four leadership changes since mid-19, I'm sorry, 2020. Um, And in a 2021 survey, 75% of the force said they'd leave the force if they could. I used to have a podcast that I did with Yael, who I mentioned, and we would have officers on. And we also had a clubhouse where we talked to different officers. And we were having a clubhouse once, and there were, I believe, 10 officers in the room with us. God, doesn't clubhouse sound like a million years ago? I, I'm a million not, years ago. It's sure. like, honestly, it's like hieroglyphics. I got a, I got a, a, a alert the other day saying, you have a new clubhouse follower. I'm like, I haven't what? been on clubhouse in two years. But Is in it any my case, grandmother? Exactly. Um, but uh. Um, we had 10 officers there. A couple of them were public information officers, but most of them were active uh, police. And we asked a question or somebody asked a question, would you <clears throat> encourage your child to go into law enforcement? And every single one of them said, had it been five years ago? Yes. Now? No. And you actually see in this article, many of them or several of them that she's profiling are the children of officers. It's second and third Absolutely. Um, generation. And there is a line in here saying it used to be, it used to be sort of a, a, a pretty good job to have. Like there were pretty good benefits and you felt like you were a valued member of the community. You definitely, whether this is true or not, because we know uh, data show that most people want more policing, but that's not what you hear. You hear about yeah. the loud people that are very angry. They want no policing or they want you know some police defunded. But it is the case that those people are, I was part of them and the, the crowds in, in Portland, they're very loud and they're calling basically for your your head, if you're an officer, not meaning that they want to kill you, though obviously that happens, but they want you to be demoralized. They want to show you how much they hate you and yeah. believe you are the enemy. And at a certain point, this is not this. I mean, if if that if this were happening now to journalists, which it kind of is, we're, well, we're by not, the way, it is. I think that I survey. I mean, I, I can't tell you the number of other journalists that have said I wouldn't let my kid go into journalism. Well, yeah, but it's not. It's kind of been journalism has been defunded. But um, it's when I when I was in Portland, yeah, almost every, not every. I shouldn't say that of the of the departments I've looked into, which includes Portland, obviously, because that's my beat. You can't staff up. People are just not joining the academy. They're just not going through it. They or they're taking early retirement. Or one officer I talked to recently, he's like, I left. I went to Forest Grove, which is from Portland, which is this like small little community where it's going to be okay, where he's not like spit at, where he doesn't have people come and into his face and, and squeeze little piggy toys and say, kill yourself, kill yourself. You know, it's like this is like not what I, I believe me. The restraint I saw a lot of officers show, and of course I was also on the street when there was you know beatings and tumult and things being shot off. But the restraint that officers showed at least in twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one is Herculean. And for what, Sarah? I'm not kidding you. If I had a dollar for every time I heard all cops are bastards shouted, I would have ten thousand dollars. <laughs> That's crazy. It's crazy. So uh, all of this is going alongside, like I said, this this crime wave. So just to give you a sense of what that looked like, criminal homicides increased from 89 in 2019 to 161 in 2020. That was the highest annual number in the city history. And the next year was worse. It went up to 177. Same in Portland. Same. Yeah. And And, you know, in case you say, well, you know, I don't know what you would say to say that doesn't matter, but, you know, given that all of this is in the context of the Black Lives Matter movement, I think it's really important to point out that 71% of those that were killed, oh, I'm sorry, 71% of victims involved in the city's non-fatal shootings were black. There was just a terrible stat there of how many murders there had been and how many were young black men. It's just horrifying. It's horrifying. And how do you, anyway, sorry. Well, it's, you know, there's. Here it is. Many of the city's murder victims are black men and boys, 776 of 1,293 since 2011. This is, I, I, obviously, none of us have the answer to, the whole answer right now. 
to how to bring this down. But I will say that it seemed to me in her reporting, she really did get at people trying, trying to do things in new ways, including I thought um, this one officer was teaching a jujitsu class. I thought that was so interesting that they're they're introducing jujitsu into the academy. And it's which is becoming popular in law enforcement because of its emphasis on using the least amount of force necessary, relying on techniques like locks and holds rather than punches or let's say stun guns or something like that, right? This is like, okay, here's the thing. You know, the last line of this, not to give away her, her kicker, but the last line of this is, until we live in a world without evil, we need police. You are going to have people doing bad shit and they're going to do bad shit to you your mother, your kid, and every every society forms some sort of consortium where, where you're feeling protected, where you're being protected. But isn't it better to protect by putting someone in a headlock rather than, you know, hitting them with a stun gun or shooting them? So they're yeah. trying. They're trying. Absolutely. You know, but as Sam Harris has said far more articulately than I could ever dream of doing, one of the smartest things we did as a society was to outsource violence to, a you know, a paid team of people. Uh, we don't, we want to um, have people employed to do that mm-hmm. rather than to let justice reign Vigilanteism. Exactly. So, so like I said, this is taking place in Louisville because of the Breonna Taylor story. I was slightly concerned that this story was going to get bogged down in the Breonna Taylor story because it's a story that I've read a lot about. You mentioned the Rukmini Kalamachi story that was yep. so excellent. That's also in the New York Times Magazine. Um, fortunately, it did not. It was very brief, but it does give you a reason. It almost uses Breonna Taylor as a case study for why we really do need to interrogate how we address these crime waves because it's Breonna Taylor. You know, that is a cautionary tale about what happens when you use the wrong methods to address a crime wave. That is what happened back then. They yes. were, uh, Louisville was having a crime wave. The commanders created a series of specialized units uh, to target guns and drugs. They were, it was called, uh, one of them was called Place-Based Investigation. And in 2019, the PBI uh, detectives, they homed in on a, a target, this guy, Jamarcus Glover. And he was a 29-year-old that they suspected of selling crack and other drugs in the city's West End. Now, I spoke to Jamie this morning on the phone. Uh, uh, she was saying that, you know, oh, I wish they'd had, we'd had more space to talk about what an interesting character this guy was. He was a little bit of a Robin Hood. There's videos of him, I think, handing out ice cream to kids with his, like, drug money. Um, He's a real character from The Wire sort of thing. And, you know, his operation is growing and and he's broadcasting this live on Facebook. and, And this just says he's smoking blunts and waving around large wads of cash. Well, Brianna Taylor dated him once, and they mistakenly thought that uh, either he was staying with her, which he was not, or she was getting packages delivered there, right. which she probably was, but they were un they were like Amazon packages that he didn't want sent to the trap house where he was living. So, you know, they had a little bit to go on there. And again, you can read Kalamachi's piece on this. It's going to be much, much uh, more specified in in what their suspicion was. It wasn't like there was no suspicion at all. Right, right. It, it's just that all of this suspicion did not did not warrant busting down someone's no. door. While they're sleeping. Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, if you don't know the story, Brianna Taylor's boyfriend uh, you know, shot through the door because he thought they were being broken into, uh, they shot back. But wasn't it the case that the bullet that hit her actually came from outside? There was another officer standing like outside of the apartment I think you're right. and shot up. I mean, which is just. Yeah, that I, officer was just like poorly trained. It was a disaster story. Yeah, like, everything went sideways. on God's earth? Everything went sideways. And it's sort of like what we're talking about in the Rust situation. Like everything just goes sideways and someone ends up shot and dead. You know, there's just so many details in this story that bring home what it might be like to put on that uniform that day and the, 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 how you want to be 
have pride in what you do. All of us want to have pride in what we do. And the forces working against you, whether earned or not, that keep you from feeling that pride. And there's one officer that uh, talks about going to the protests after the 911 tapes of Breonna Taylor was was released to the public. I mean, this thing just caught fire. And he says, when he looked into the crowd, he saw a nurse in scrubs, a UPS delivery man, a teenager in a red Chick-fil-A shirt. It was not a small group of activists. It was everybody. Quote, you thought every single person in the city was against you. Then the other line from this section that killed me was, um, what happened is that even though this was kind of a big deal, it wasn't national news. The Breonna Taylor story had not really exploded. Well, what did explode, right? It was the killing of George Floyd sometime later. And there's a quote from the piece that says, two, officer tol- two officers told me they were somewhat relieved when the national focus turned to George Floyd's death two months after Taylor's, believing that the case was so egregious it would take the heat off Louisville, which, of course, it did not. It became too, like, two airstreams or two waves. Twin flames, yeah. Yeah, they just collided and everything. I mean, we know what happened. We know what happened. I'm assuming, I could be wrong, everybody that is listening to this, was alive during the, you know, the summer of rage that I call it in, in summer of 2020 when people were so, they did not know what to do with the anger and the grief that they felt and the real rage. And then that rage became contagious and became something else and, you know, set our cities on fire and, and set our souls, for lack of a better word, on fire, believing that we were doing the right thing by spreading further, basically spreading further hate when we believed that we were saving humanity, which. So Jamie and I are really tight and we review each other's work. And one of the things that's funny about her is that basically if you call her and say, this is amazing, she'll just sit there and go like, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And she'll be like, what are they going to attack me on? What's the bad part? Where did I screw up? What's wrong with this story? She wants to know the weak spots. And I said, listen, I don't, I don't think there are any, but there's sentences I would have, like, I mean, I have different critiques about the art and the placement and the captions and things like that. But like, as far as this piece, there's only one sentence I want to, I want to have a debate with you about, and I would have asked you to maybe change it. Do you want to guess which one that was? No, go for it, Sarah. I, 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 I go for it. You don't remember this this piece in its entirety and can't like <laughs> a chat GPT. <laughs> well, anyway, the sentence was studies would later categorize the 2020 protests as overwhelmingly peaceful. Oh, 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 uh, th- th- that. OK. Based uh, on the relatively low numbers of injuries and property damage. But- and it links to a study. And I wanted to know what's the study and what do we mean when we say overwhelmingly peaceful? So this sentence triggered me, and I wanted to know why she used it. What were your thoughts? Well, I saw that, and I, I didn't click the link on the study, but I can certainly understand why somebody, why studies would say that. First of all, that's what everybody wanted to hear, and I've said this 50 billion times. It's like if we criticize any protester, if we criticize the peaceful protesters, then we risk tarring the entire, if we criticize the violent protesters, we risk tarring the entire protest movement, right? So people didn't do it. Also, of course, you know this, we saw from Kenosha, we saw the dude standing in front of the flames going, this is a mostly peaceful protest. It's like, no, it's not. Don't, don't, this, don't, we're not that stupid. But people wanted to believe because their mission, it needed to match their mission. But I don't, I don't think she was stating with that sentence that that she obviously thinks that at all. And I think she qualified it by saying, yeah, well, this data says that. But I don't think people – I don't think that there's anybody – okay, I'll ask you a question. Do you think that there's anybody in this country that believes that the protests in the summer of, of 2020 moving in the case of Portland into 2021 – we're mostly peaceful? 100%. I think there's a lot of people that do. And I think there's actually evidence that backs up that they were mostly peaceful. But we have to ask what that means. Are we talking about like, you know, I went to, I think, like four different protests for George Floyd in Dallas. 
all of them were peaceful. But there was one, the night of the George Floyd, like, explosion yep. that destroyed downtown right. and also ended up with a bunch of people with tear gas, like, injuries on both sides. It was a disaster. By, by a pie chart, that's mostly peaceful. But that's like saying the Vietnam War is mostly peaceful. Okay, I mean, so, you know, it, it, it's it's moments of terror and destruction and then four days of nothing. And I don't mean to be comparing this to the Vietnam War. I'm just trying to use an example of why that's a that's a fraught term. And, and you can interpret it in multiple different ways. I think most of the protesters were peaceful. I do. I, I, I think I've, I've heard from too many people that went to too many. Like, you have to understand, these protests weren't just in Portland and Dallas and New York. They were in small towns like Corsicana. They were in towns like, you know, uh, I, I can't remember the other city that had Victoria, Texas. You know, they were having small protests. Yes, Statistically, I think they were mostly peaceful. Is that an accurate way? Is overwhelmingly peaceful the way to remember those protests? I don't think that's how most people remember them. So I will say there is a difference between protests and protesters, right? Sure. So what happens? George Floyd is killed and it, everybody, you know, that hears about this, this, this is just this tragic watching this horrible thing that we're all now part of. Sort of like when I when I went with you to JFK and stood stood there, we're having this communal experience of grief and confusion. And you get a lot of people in the street. We had in Portland, I wasn't there for the first couple of nights of, of uh, protests, 10,000 people marching across the Burnside Bridge. Damian Lillard, Damian Lillard of the Portland Trailblazers, I think he like lay down, on the, just like, on the on the bridge, people were, yes, these were peaceful protesters. Now, I am going to admit, and I'm actually quite sure, that I have somewhat jaundiced view of this because I was on the ground for yeah, dozens of nights for in sure. Portland, okay? The marches in Portland, <clears throat> several of them, I've, I've written many times about this, we'll put some links, several of them were peaceful at the beginning, because that's where people were reacting. And then we still had little pockets of things that were peaceful. We had like, there was this um, this car caravan that would go around, toot, toot. They'd toot their horns. It was very, very, very sweet. However, they went on for 108 straight nights before the wildfires came in and people, was, the air was like the color of mustard. Everyone had to stay inside. Wow. And then they resumed right again. They resumed right afterwards. These were not, these were not peaceful any night. Any night. So I cannot say I think the majority of these protests, maybe the majority of protesters, because you've got like these big giant numbers at the beginning, then they go back to their lives. But as the protests continued and the looting continued and the riots and the fires and the, you know, that it, it spawned other things. And then people were so addicted to feeling so angry, but also now they're out of the house. They can be, they can be out of the house during the pandemic and also saving the world. And it's mostly young people. Let's be frank. They can't go to the movies. They can't go to bars. They can't go out. Fuck. They, they, they have this opportunity <laughs> now, right? They can be in the streets with their friends, saving the world. Yeah. They were saving the world by burning shit down. Okay. And then, yeah, when I, uh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I think maybe I did mean to interrupt you. What I wanted to say <laughs> was that uh, when I talk to cops about this, what you're describing, they say it was peaceful in the day and it was never peaceful at night. Never peaceful at so night. So that, so, so that goes to your theory. But that is also, that's also true of crime in general. Like, you know, we know this, like crime goes up at night. But also peaceful during the day. I, I, look, it was the pandemic. People weren't really going out during the day, right? They were home. They were working from home. It's not like they're like, well, let's like go out and have a daytime march. They weren't doing that. That was not happening. Okay. They were, they, it was a nighttime situation. So I, I, you know, if we're looking at numbers, pure numbers, yeah, I think most protesters were peaceful. And that's actually definitely true because even when I was in front of the courthouse and they're like throwing flaming barbecues and shining laser lights in people's eyes and, you know, there's tear gas and rubber bullets and all this stuff. Most of the people causing the mayhem, it was a small consortium. If you had 2,000 people down there, it was like 200 
that were causing the problems. So are the other 1,800 that went every night out every, they were out there partying. They, I cannot tell you the number of people I talked to. They're like, it's fun out here. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It was yeah. fun. And, and how do you parse these statistics exactly? I mean, that's a tricky thing. So anyway, I think that is, you know, she wanted to, I think, put that to the side and just keep going with the story. I, you know, I think it's such a sort of Russian nesting doll of, of complication that I wanted to spend a little bit more time on it in the story. But, you know, um, the other thing, the other moment that really hit me was a story about uh, an Iraq an Afghanistan vet who yeah. becomes yeah. a cop and, you know, he's got PTSD and he's probably not been trained really well and he's got some anger and he finds himself during one of these protests. I don't really know the, the exact, uh, I don't know what happened here, but he, he beats somebody with his baton Yep, and he gets a two year jail sentence, prison sentence. Yep. And, and the, the, he's got a five and a seven-year-old and they've told the kids that daddy's in a timeout. That was funny. <laughs> it was cute, right? It's like a good little detail yeah. to humanize yeah. his family. Yeah, but um, I'm sure that there are people that do not want this. Sorry, I'm I'm interrupting you now. But, you know, it. that's why I'm saying I'm so impressed that the Times is running this now because it is not, look, it has not been the thing people wanted to do, which was humanize, was humanize cops. Now, some people listening now, they they know or they don't know that I wrote a book called um, To the Bridge, A True Story of Motherhood and Murder. And the woman who did the killing, you know, I basically humanized that her. That was not popular. It's, people don't want to think that the people that are your enemies are human, that they have kids, that they breathe, that they're afraid, that they have PTSD, that they're depressed, that they're broke. They don't want to know that. Because then they have to feel something for you. They have to say, oh, wait, you're part of humanity too? Fuck. You know, this is this is not convenient for me. It is not convenient for me to, to think that all cops are not bastards. What do we do here on Smoke em If You Got Him? We humanize people. That's right. So this guy, um, he has a great quote. Like he said some really interesting things about the kind of soul damage that happens on the force. And this is something I knew because of the person that I loved who was a homicide detective. Um, he says, there's so much more evil that goes on in the world than the lay person ever sees. They never hear about it. And if they do, it's on some Netflix docudrama that doesn't seem real. They've never gone into a house covered in urine and fecal matter infested with bed, bed bugs and roaches where a baby is crying with a diaper full of, expletive with its bottom raw the mother and father passed out high again this is the kind of stuff that cops see depending on their beat sometimes daily and they've dealt with a broken system for a very long time a dysfunctional system you know you can see this in the wire but what they did get was a sense that they were doing good that people liked them. One of Nick's favorite things to do, well, I don't know if it was, I shouldn't say it was his favorite thing, but everywhere we went, somebody bought him his coffee, his drink. Yeah. Yeah. They bought him things. We couldn't stop them, you know, everywhere we went. And I think it was one of his favorite things, although I should never speak for somebody else. The sense that you were important in the community. Maybe you don't get that much money you know, maybe your house isn't the nicest house, but look what you're doing. People appreciate what they, what you do. This, this darkness that you, that you have to wade into, it, it comes with this lightness, which is that you feel good about your work. But if you take that away, then what is there? It's what just is, darkness. I, I wrote a piece for the LA Weekly, um, years ago where I hung out at a cop bar, um, called the shortstop. I, I don't, it's, it's, I think the bar's probably still there. I don't think it's a cop bar anymore. But it they titled the piece Us Versus Them. And and one day I sat at the short end of the bar with an officer while other officers kind of sneered at him for talking to me. And he's like, I don't care if they're sneering at me. I'm going to tell you. And one of the things he told me is of these things that you see when you're an officer, just like the story you told me, or, you know, it's somebody, you find their body crawling with maggots, or you have to go someplace where someone's been beaten or children have been abandoned or whatever. He goes, and you go home. You come here first and you drink five beers, right? Yes. And then you go home and you don't tell your wife. No. You don't tell your wife because you do not want to keep spreading this. You keep it inside. And it's 
It is a hard job, man. And I know that has been, I'm not saying this to you or even probably to the majority of our listeners. You know, you don't want to, you don't want to think that these people are doing a hard job because they have to be villainous and there are villainous actions. And we have talked about them for the past couple of years. Everybody's been talking about it. It's a very hard job. I actually make sure I say good morning every time I see a cop in the subway or on the yeah. streets. I just do because I'm actually appreciative that they're here. I mean, I, I and I and I think we need them. So yes, I don't. I haven't bought them their coffee, but I'll certainly say good morning or hello every time. There's a lot of functional alcoholism and a garden variety of addictions in people oh, on yeah. the force. It's just a known thing. It's a coping mechanism. It's a bonding thing. You know, this is true in in a lot of parts of society, high stress jobs where maybe people at home don't understand. And what can you do? You can go to the bar and you can drink and the drinking keeps you from feeling. But the drinking also starts to... Uh, tear you apart. One of the reasons that Nick and I reunited was that a, a, a mutual friend and bar owner had dropped out of a heart attack at 58. He was a former homicide guy. And that's a very common story for the cops. Um, there was a story in here that I found very illuminating because we've seen a lot of videos on uh, so the socials about um, like stores being looted and cops just standing there. And yeah. there was an interesting anecdote here that gave so some good insight. So yep. uh, more recently, a white female uh, police chief, I believe her name is Erica and I can't, Shields, Erica Shields, she comes on to run the department and she's trying to understand why in April 2021, there were protests about um, Dwayne. Dante Wright. Uh, this wasn't somebody in Louisville. This was one of these things where like he'd been shot uh, by a cop in Minnesota who thought she was using a taser. Maybe you remember that. But, you know, we had reached this moment where any, you know, any one of these egregious deaths would ignite, reignite the protests in various parts of the city. This happened in Louisville. It had happened in a pretty affluent part of the community. They had shut down the streets. They were like pulling stuff in. You know, there's all sorts of stuff is happening. And the cops aren't engaging. And Erica Shields is like, what the fuck is going on? Like, why is everyone just standing there? And, you know, she meets with her unit supervisors and they explain that the officers were just afraid, worried that no one would have their backs if something went wrong. And her quote here is, it was really eye-opening. It wasn't that these folks didn't want to work. They didn't dare to work. They didn't want to be the next story on the news because things go sideways. Okay, if you're in with a violent mob, are you? This violent mob is just going to be like, oh yeah, it's great. We're just like going to have some like popcorn over here. No, people have guns. People have knives. People do stupid things. People are in a mob. They're they're not thinking right, or they want to be a hero. And then what is this officer supposed to do? I mean, something goes sideways. You you use violence, and then you're the next story on the news. I, I believe me. It is the case that there were officers that did not engage because they they knew they were afraid of the possible repercussions or they slow rolled. You know, they just yeah. were not going to. But then coupled with that <clears throat> is the fact I'm actually working on a little piece now. I have another uh, substack called uh, Make More Pie. And I'm writing about uh, somebody I interviewed in Portland last year. And God, I'm losing my train of thought here. Oh, um, you have a smaller police force, right? Because people are getting PTSD or you're not getting new recruits or they're, they're talking about defunding or people just like, I got to get out of here. So you have too few people. So now this is the summer of 2020. Every single night, the, the, I don't know what to call them, activists, act, Antifa protesters, rioters, you call them what you want. They're in the streets and they're at several different places. They're in front of the courthouse, always downtown. You've seen all these pictures, but also you'd have bands of them going out to this, um, the police union hall, which is in uh, North Portland. So they go there and they set fires. They, it's just, it literally became like groundhog night every night. It was just the same thing over and over and over. And I was there one night and what had happened, I think the day before, a couple of days before that horrible video you saw from Portland where this motorist in a pickup truck was pulled out of his truck and kicked in the head. Oh, yeah. it, it, it was a big, it was a big deal. The guy was actually arrested finally that did it. And he was, you know, a lot of these people, they claim to be like Black Lives Matter activists. They're 
they're just thugs. thugs. Okay. They're thugs hiding behind this sort of, you know, oh, really what they want to do is they want to cause mayhem. It's like, oh, now I can do it with impunity. Anyway, it was a terrible, terrible thing. And I'm hanging out with the the black block kids and they're breaking into the police station and they're setting fires. And it was such a weird moment, Sarah, because first of all, black block doesn't want to talk to you, right? But these kids are also super young and I'm trying to look over this fence that they're doing. And this kid goes, oh, do you want a better look? And I'm a journalist. Like, I'm, I'm like, uh, sure. So they pull over an apple box for me to stand on so I can uh, look at the fires that they're setting. And I'm like wow. this and I'm, I'm taking notes. And finally I see this one kid, he's literally maybe 20 and tiny, like 120 pounds. And he's in black block, you know, covered all black face covered. And I said to him, so, you know, last night that guy getting kicked in the, in the, from the truck, like, you know, how do you feel about that? And he looks down and he's like, the cops should have been there. And I was like, right. But you're yelling. All cops are bastards constantly. Okay. And second of all, they're chasing you guys around. Like yeah. you only have so many officers. I think it was 800 officers and they're just dispatched everywhere having to like all this mayhem. Wow. And he looked and he goes, they should have been there. Okay. Well, if you want the police to be where violent things are happening, then like real violent, real, real danger, then maybe you have to stop creating many pockets of danger. I, I, it's not helping. It's not helping. Nancy, I'm always mesmerized by your Portland stories. I I really just hope that you will write and continue to write. I don't know if you're tired of that story or not. I'm not, baby. I'm up every day writing that story. Okay, good. Because I I really think you will be able to tell that Hello, Smoking We've Got Them listeners. If you are hearing this, that means you have just listened to the free portion of our Oh, I don't know. Bi-weekly episodes with Sarah Heppler. Sarah Heppler, who's just so busy right now, she could not record this little uh, interim moment for you. Um, we're happy to have you here as a free subscriber. If you'd like the entire episodes, please go over to smokeempodcast.substack.com and sign up and subscribe. Then you will get the full episodes every week, plus some special things we drop for you on the weekends and our monthly, our first Sunday Zooms. Again, to get the full fig, that is smokeempodcast.substack.com. Thanks.